Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would answer your emails. This first email is from listener Rachel from Israel. She writes, I've just found out that my boyfriend watches porn. What does this mean? I don't feel particularly hurt by it, but should I? We very much love each other, and he told me he only watches porn when we don't do sex for a while. For example, when I'm on my period, we sometimes don't do it for a week. End of email. Yeah, I think everyone has their own sense of this. And in thinking about it, I you know read your email a little bit ago, and I, I've been thinking about it. I think one way to, or the way I think about it, is that we all understand that there's a spectrum between monogamy and polyamory or ethical non-monogamy. And my way of thinking is that whether people are born this way or they just develop into this, there are some people that are, that are just oriented seemingly consistently towards monogamy or polyamory or somewhere in between. Meaning that, like for me, I'm oriented towards monogamy. Me and my wife are monogamous and I don't have any itch to be with other people. I don't lament not being able to be with other people. You know, is that an orientation? Is it is it in my DNA? Is it just my life choices? Who knows? But I, I, I'm very content and looking out, you know, throughout my life, I, I've, I've been, you know, uh, very much oriented towards monogamy. And so other people are oriented towards polyamory, meaning that they want to be with many people or two or more. And when they're in a monogamous relationship, for the most part, it's it's rough on them. And uh, although they're getting some of their needs met, they're not getting all their needs met. And so in the same way with pornography, that for some people, they seem to be, whether it's an orientation or the way they developed or their values or whatever, that if their partner, and there's a spectrum from um, watching pornography with your partner actively and both partners watch pornography on their own and with their partner and and there's um, celebration of that and, and they're totally fine with it. On the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are 100% against it. And I'm not talking about the value or the um, morality of porn, which I'll get into in a second, but I'm talking about, you know, whether the industry is ethical or not. What I'm talking about is whether it's okay with you that your partner looks at those kinds of things, whether it's pictures or videos or whatever. And uh, for those people who are very much against it, their primary pain is that when they think about their partner looking at and lusting after other people, it threatens their attachment and it threatens their uh, self-esteem, which is totally fine. You know, it, it, I'm not going to stigmatize that at all. In sex positive circles, sometimes that can be stigmatized as limiting and backward in some ways. And uh, I don't believe that. I think I think it's fine if, if that's what you believe and you shouldn't be forced to change your mind. Um, and of course, there's everything in between where some people are okay with some porn some of the time or particular kinds of porn. You know, I've talked with couples where the wife is, say, Asian, and she doesn't want her white husband to look at Asian porn. He can look at um, porn of any other ethnicity, but just not Asian because she wants to be seen as the only Asian woman in his life, or it just feels weird to be looking at Asian, you know, pornography actresses or something, actors. 
you know, that's not a real example for my practice, but it's close to an example that I worked with. And so there's a lot of things in between. There's, um, you know, don't ask, don't tell. There's ask and tell. You know, there's various different policies that I think, uh, given your development, given your makeup, your values, your your lifestyle, your attachment style, for example, uh, you can determine that. And I've worked with a lot of individuals and couples on this issue. It's worth exploring. Um, as an asterisk, people will sometimes uh, email in and say to me that I'm uh, I should be speaking out more against porn. And of course, there are evil, truly evil aspects to the pornography industry, meaning that there are literal sex slaves and sex trafficking that is occurring to these, um, you know, quote unquote performers, but they're, you know, essentially slaves. And they might be in the United States, they might be in another country, you know, because that's the thing about pornography is it's on the internet. And so anyone in any country can put something up on the internet and sell it. And so, and there's a lot of money in it, particularly if you're in a developing country, because <clears throat> you can charge developing, developed nations prices and make a lot of money relative to what you would get in a, at a regular job in your community in a third world country. Um, and so the, uh, the incentives are there, the economics are there to exploit. And if you don't have regulations and laws and uh, avenues that, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, what, am I, what am I looking for? Exploited. If you don't have avenues for exploited individuals to seek justice and safety, then it perpetuates this harm to people. And that's, that's absolutely happening. It's happening right now. It, I don't know the stats. It might even be increasing because pornography money is, you know, always increasing over time. So uh, there's that. Absolutely. Having said that, there is plenty of pornography that is completely ethically made, meaning that everyone is doing it voluntarily. Now, some feminists will say, and I agree with this to some extent, that we have this, uh, you know, we, we tell women that all they are are sexual objects and they're not worth anything else and they don't amount to anything other than that. And so you create a societal system that tells women that this is their only value. And by the way, you're also degrade, you know, you're told that you're degrading yourself by doing that. So there's all these messages. And then of course you create this whole industry where men are paying to exploit women. You know, uh, there, there's an aspect of that too, where, you know, so we don't have to include straight up sex slavery and sex trafficking, human trafficking to point at unethical uh, you know, practices or elements within the industry. Having, having said all that, there are plenty of pornography producers that are completely, uh, under any metric, ethical and empowering and within the control of the performers, uh, more so every day with OnlyFans and other kinds of outlets where it's essentially, you know, direct from performer to customer and you don't have to go through a middle person or someone who can exploit you. Um, in, in some ways, it's like this podcast in a lot of ways. Like it, back in the day, I would have to sell this show on a, to a radio uh, you know, broadcaster and they would take 99% of the income. They would tell me what I could say and what I couldn't say. 
Whereas I'm going direct to you. I'm recording this and I'm uploading it to the internet and you're downloading it. And there's a lot of pornography producers who are the same way and they get to dictate their schedule. They get to dictate what they do. They get to dictate what their body does. And they take, you know, 90% of the revenue or something. So there's that. And there's also corporation level pornography that is also ethical and run by people of various genders, not just men, not just women, uh, but also trans uh, and other folks. So there's, it's a, it's a diverse industry in the same way, you know, and the problem though, is that we have a society and societies around the world are, uh, um, you know, uh, puritanical or Victorian or, you know, anti-sex or something. And so, I find that the discourse around pornography tends to be pretty um, childish, <laughs> simplistic, or narrow, or straw man-ish. You know, it's similar to, there's a lot of industries like this, like the textile or garment industry, clothes industry. There are shoes and shirts and pants that you can buy that are absolutely being made by exploited labor. And uh, when you when you buy, say you buy a shirt from, you know, the Gap or Nordstrom or something, and you're wearing it around town and someone says like, who made that shirt? And you're like, oh, it's from the Gap. And they're like, well, you know, the Gap exploits sweatshop individuals in, you know, poor communities in, you know, Asia, East Asia. And you would say, oh, really? You know, and, and you, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't feel, ho I mean, I would hope that you wouldn't feel horrible about yourself. I would hope that you'd be like, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, how was I supposed to know that? <laughs> like, you know, because the governments, we're, we rely on government to look into this sort of thing. And I suppose the media to, to inform the government and to uh, have regulations around those things where your government says we literally will not import uh, garments that are made from exploited workers. We're, we're just not going to do that. And so as consumers, we can't investigate every single thing that we buy. That's just not humanly possible in today's global market. So we have governments that do that for us. And, this, and pornography should be the same way. And we're heading in that direction. But because we have such a puritanical society and government, <clears throat> there's not a lot of discussion around uh, you know, labor rights and safety and non-exploitation. It's, it, it's similar to sex work, right? It's just like, it's this off the grid to some extent. Now, I know some people will say, no, pornography is definitely on the grid in the United States. And, and it very much can be. There's certainly a lot of it that is. But, it, but when you talk about the global market, then you're, you're talking, you know, very much off the grid to some extent. Anyway, so, but when it comes to pornography discussions, uh, people will say you shouldn't consume pornography because of these incidents of exploitation and uh, you should just completely not uh, consume any of it as if it'd be the same thing to say because there are exploitation of workers on garments and clothes, you should not buy any clothes ever. You should grow your own clothes or only buy clothes from someone who, you know, you physically saw growing the cotton and making the clothes down the street or something. And we all understand that doesn't make a lot of sense. And so uh, we have to bring it out in the open. We have to start talking about it. We have to start advocating. We have to start putting laws and regulations on, um, you know, the internet essentially and saying like, 
unless this pornography is certified, then we're not going to we're not going to show it in the United States. And, you know, we have plenty of laws that address this sort of thing already. Like, for example, child pornography cannot be seen in the United States. It's illegal. And we could make uh, non-certified, non-exploitative or, or we could make uh, non-certified, i.e. exploitative pornography illegal in the United States. And, and but to blame the individual who is on good faith, probably look consuming porn, uh, th- hoping that it is non-exploitative is there. Now, uh, there's obviously pornography. There, pornography is a, you know, literally everything that is humanly possible given human bodies and the human mind is, is made under the umbrella of pornography. So when some people think about pornography, they think about a particular th- uh, thing of pornography and they'll say, well, what about that? You know, what about this disgusting corner of pornography? And sure, you know, there's there are questionable corners of pornography, but it, the uh, we don't want to paint the entire industry in, in that way. Research shows that pornography can have some good effects. Uh, one, it, you know, is pleasurable to people just like any other entertainment If people use it for masturbation purposes, there's a lot of health and psychological benefits to masturbation. Um, There can be negative effects for sure, like anything else. But um, there's that. It can help people to normalize certain fetishes that they have. Uh, There's research that shows that there's a lot of, you know, sex shame in our society. And then when they look online and they see people enjoying particular things that they enjoy they're like oh maybe or they see a community of people enjoying a particular kind of pornography they're like oh i guess i'm i have my people and and that's okay um there's obviously bad parts of porn where it makes uh, certain um, sexual acts seem extremely normal there can be pretty aggressive um sexual acts which aren't bad you know some people like aggressive sex but it can socialize young people to believe that um, certain things are extremely normal when in fact they're not. The research is showing that this effect is not as, uh, bl- as, as large as what we would think. You know, we have a generation of people in their 20s and 30s right now that grew up with internet porn, and we don't see extremely high rates of sexual you know problems with those people there there are things you know like you could even say that <clears throat> one of the biggest biggest effects of porn on young people today you know people in their 20s is loneliness in that if you can get your sexual needs met and all of your social needs met on Instagram and your sexual needs met on the internet with internet porn then you have less reason to leave the house and when you have less reason to leave the house, you have more social anxiety and your friends don't leave the house either. And so everyone's stuck at home and lonely and depressed and anxious and their life lacks meaning and they don't have uh, their attachment needs met. So if anything, online pornography, along with every other online you know, uh, thing that's delivered to humans, absolutely seems to be contributing to the loneliness epidemic around the world, particularly in Western society, because, you know, Western people have just a lot of internet. And um, 
but yeah, obviously there are effects on, and there are, you know, there's research that shows that young people have kind of a twisted view of sexuality. But what seems to be happening is that when these people who were socialized by porn actually start having sex, they, they kind of iron it out. You know, it, it's like they might have this weird version, but when they actually start interfacing physically with other people, maybe there's some mistakes that are made early on, but as long as they're kind and exploratory, they eventually uh, find satisfactory sexual um, lives that don't involve the twisted, distorted view that they internalized growing up. Um, there's also, you know, body shaming that can happen from the consumption of porn because uh, there are certain exaggerated body parts that will be more prevalent in pornography. Not always, but but commonly, that can make uh, people of all genders feel inadequate, and obviously that's not okay. But that is a problem in all print media, <laughs> in all photoshopped experiences, in in movies. You know, just just watch movies and just notice the the strangeness of the the actors you know the the how thin they are and how beautiful they are and how wonderful their hair looks all the time and their skin and you know so <clears throat> uh, we have a problem in general in all visual media involving human bodies that will uh, privilege others and um you know, oppress other. There's also a racism thing um, in in pornography. You, you could point to that, but again, you, you could accuse Hollywood of this of the same thing. I'm not saying that we don't address it, but it it's not like we need to single out pornography as as this horrible thing. And and what I find is that the puritanical Victorian attitudes uh, get they they amp up all of the criticisms against porn times 10 like all the criticisms you hear against pornography are or not all but many are completely valid but they get they get multiplied by 10 because people have basically a porn panic or a sex negative or or they just don't understand porn you know they just they they haven't used it themselves they don't consume it themselves and it and it grosses them out and it's like okay you know don't yuck other people's yum how about that 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 kind of thing so um you know, there's a lot to say, and, and there's a lot of research, and, and there's a lot of nuances to what I'm saying. But what I'm adv advocating for is sex positivity, regulations, non-exploitation, non power to the performers, um, allow, you know, don't yuck other people's yum, uh, uh, understanding that there are ethical pornography outlets that are ethically made, and not necessarily the stereotypical pornography um, thing <laughs> that you might sort of have in your mind if, if you're if you're not a frequent consumer of pornography. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. All right. So getting to your email, listener Rachel from Israel, you said you know just reading it again. I just found out that my boyfriend watches porn. What does it mean? I don't feel particularly hurt, but should I? Um, well, right. So getting back to what I was saying earlier in terms of there are people on various ends of the spectrum. And what I'll say about that spectrum is for some people, they haven't really thought about it much. And they've sort of internalized a lot of messages from society and their knee-jerk reaction to their partner looking at porn or themselves looking at porn isn't really necessarily what they 
themselves would believe if they took the time to explore. For example, you could grow up in a very fundamentalist family and have a lot of sex negativity and a lot of sort of um, extreme ideas about all sorts of things. And you get married and you're like completely anti-porn. But then you start to explore things. And I've worked with clients in this situation. You start to explore things. You start to explore general sex positivity, your own sexuality, what it, what sex means to you. And you start to make some personal choices instead of following the indoctrination of your childhood and, and wherever you are at. And you, and you land somewhere else. Uh, you know, maybe you retain the anti-porn uh, position, but maybe you don't. And so for some people there, uh, when I see them in my office, where they are at regarding all sorts of things regarding sex is not where they end up after exploration. And, you know, I, I allow people to, uh, you know, obviously land wherever they land. I, I'm not advocating for anything. Like I said earlier, if someone decides that they're anti-porn and we go on an exploration and they retain the anti-porn attitude, I'm a hundred percent behind that. It, to me, it's all a matter of, did you land on a position from an informed and uh, flexible place? Were you allowed to develop your own ideas about these sorts of things? You know, of course, that's a fuzzy idea because none of us really have our own ideas. It's all part of society. But, you know, did, did you, did you have options and did you voluntarily with information, with the you know correct information, make a determination. Um, in the same way that, in my mind, it's it, you know if some people are forced into monogamy, for example, when they are oriented towards polyamory, and so we want to allow people to explore that. If they end up landing, you know, with exploration of polyamorous ideas and open relationship, non non monogamous ideas they're still monogamous after that, then it's like, oh, okay. But you can't, just because someone is monogamous in today's society, you can't know if they're truly monogamous. Whereas if someone is polyamorous, in all likelihood, they absolutely are polyamorously oriented because they had to go against so many things in society. And in a similar way, if someone is anti-porn and they come from an anti-porn culture, you can't know if they're actually anti-porn. And by anti-porn, I mean, you know, they just... They don't want to consume it and they don't want their partner to consume it. We can't really know if that's their true attitude because that's such a common attitude in, in society, uh, particularly in certain circles. And so we would want to hope to help them explore. And if they still land in the same place at the end of that, then it's like, oh, okay, well, you know, that's fine. But, you, you know, some people might just believing that because they've been um, brainwashed essentially. So for you, Rachel, you're like, my boyfriend watches porn. What does it mean? Uh, so I think what you're saying there is that, you know, does it mean that my boyfriend doesn't want to be with me? Not necessarily. It can, for sure, you know, but but not, you know, statistically not likely. Um, a lot of people, various genders look at porn, and it doesn't mean anything in terms of their dedication to their current spouse. You know, it can, but it, I, I, that wouldn't be my first assumption. Um, it can... Sometimes, you know, people will assume, oh, does that mean that I'm not a good lover in bed? No, you know, it, 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 again, it can mean that, but that wouldn't be my first assumption. What my first assumption would be is if someone said, if Rachel came to me as a client, said, you know, my boyfriend watches porn. I just found out, you know, what do I do about it? I just like, well, just ask him, you know, just say, well, uh, what's going on? And as a larger question, um, let's talk openly about our sexuality and our sex. You know, are things going well for the two of us? 
Is there, are there more things we want to do? Um, is porn a replacement or is it just an adjunct? You know, one of the things about uh, masturbation, uh, which pornography is often involved with, is that um, it's often seen as like a, a secondary or a, a lesser sexual experience. No. <laughs> masturbation for some people is not only an equal to in-person sex, but maybe even superior in terms of the enjoyment that one gets out of it. And it, it's it's all okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with being like, hey, I like masturbation more than having sex with my spouse. That could be an indication of like, oh, you know, maybe look at improving your uh, sexual relationship with your spouse. But but there's no way to... Uh, anyway, my point is, is that uh, to bar someone from having self-pleasure just because you don't like it is, I, I don't know, I, if, if that's like your first reaction, I, I, I think that's unfair. I think that for some people, masturbation is the same as like taking a hike or um, just, you know, reading a book it's, uh, or getting a massage or something. You know, it's, it's something that they do for themselves and it, it's something that gives them pleasure. It's, re, you know, relaxation it's an escape, whatever it is. It, and it doesn't mean you have to allow it. And this is why it's so important that you know who you are sexually as soon as you can so that when you start dating, you can tell people right away. You could literally say in your dating profile on Tinder, I don't want a partner who watches porn. These are the sorts of things you have to find out in the same way that you don't, if you're you know gay, you don't want to date a heterosexual person and vice versa, right? You want to find your people. You want to find people that are compatible with you. And, and so when it comes to pornography, it's one of those issues. You, you want to discover who you are, and then you got to find other... Because, you know, there are other people that, are, that don't watch porn and, and, and don't want to do that sort of thing. Whereas there are other people that do. But we live in a such, you know, such a sex-shaming society that these issues won't come up for years. You know, people will date, get married, have kids. And then 10 years in, it's like, oh, you watch porn, you know, it was never discussed. Why? Because, you know, we have a ridiculous society. And then you say, you know, I don't feel particularly hurt by my boyfriend watching porn, but should I be hurt? No. I mean, if, if I'm guessing the fact that you're not hurt indicates that you're, you're, you're not at the, that end of the spectrum that is oriented anti-porn. And it's not just, again, porn. It's the act of thinking about your your boyfriend looking at images of other people and getting turned on by it or fantasizing about other people. Um, some people are okay with that and some people aren't. Um, there's a number of uh, emails here about pornography uh, that I, I, I'm going to read as well. But first, let's take a break. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, we're back from the break. So I want to do an OPP, an old patron praise. These people became a patron in April of 2019 and have stayed patrons ever since. So not only did they become a patron, which is super cool, but they've stuck with us through thick and thin for almost two years. We have Adina from Great Britain, London. We have Elva, Elva from Georgia. We have Vanessa from God knows where. We have Rebecca from Australia. We have Hayden from Texas. We have Monica from California. We have Charlie from God knows where. We have Jonathan from Great Britain. Louise, Louise from Great Britain, Donna from Texas, Caroline, Caroline from God knows where, Agata from Poland, I believe that is. Uh, we have Danny from God knows where, Eswat from God knows where, Svetlana from Toronto. We have Aneta from God knows where, Katarina from Sweden, I believe, Lydia from Sydney, Australia. So thank you all for becoming a patron in April of 2020. 19 and staying patron this entire time staying patrons and if you want to become a patron you can do so now and uh, if you become a patron become an annual patron because that means that you'll stick around a lot longer (laughs) Uh, anonymous listener wrote in and said i'm interested in your opinion on pseudo incest pornography i know that the general fantasy has been around for a long time but if anything, it has grown in popularity recently. Now, if you enter a mainstream porn site, most videos are titled Stepdaughter This or Stepsister This. Additionally, how could this affect the youth who have completely unregulated access to porn these days in terms of their own development? End of email. Right, so just a side note on children being exposed to pornography. There are various possible effects, but generally speaking, it's not something we want to expose children to. And it can be absolutely abusive. Uh, I've worked with clients who were exposed to porn by their parents, for example. Like I I had a a teenager who had a lot of problems because of various issues of mistreatment growing up. But one of the elements of mistreatment growing up was that the father would watch pornography and get drunk in the middle of the living room and just sit in a chair in front of the TV and just watch porn after porn after porn. God knows why he was doing that, but, and the kids were, you know, five years old or something. And this can absolutely harm a child. It is a lot to take in as a child. It's, it's very, you know, some of it can be very graphic and it alerts certain sexual realities to children that starts certain balls rolling in a very weird way that can cause problems later on. You know, it's it's very much akin to sexual abuse to expose a child to sexuality and to be a victim of sexuality. We all know that that has negative effects. And so uh, we absolutely 
should be regulating it. And the problem is, is we just have this completely open internet. You know, there's not, you know, back in the day, there would be the, the adult movie section and you'd had to physically go past a curtain. And today, uh, trying to put up that curtain for children is really hard on the internet. You know, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember a time when it wasn't like automatically assumed that you would give a child a computer or, you know, or a phone, um, you know, in the nineties and even in the aughts, it, it was normal for parents to say like, I don't, you know, my kid doesn't have a cell phone. My kid doesn't have access to a computer. And so it was, you know, you could really protect children from all the evil stuff that, you know, well, pornography's not evil, but harmful things on the internet from children. And, to, but today, you know, it's, it's just, if, if a eight-year-old doesn't have a cell phone, it's some kind of like, it's treated like neglect, like uh, parents will call CPS <laughs> or something like your child doesn't have an iPad. Like what kind of monster are you? And I'm just like, how did that happen? How did, you know, talk about marketing, right? Apple and Google, all these people is just like, it, it's like when they were trying to sell cigarettes to kids or something. Now, you know, ha- having an iPad for a kid or a phone for a kid, it's not harmful, but it can be. <laughs> and so we, you know, really have to think about that. But you, you were asking about uh, incest pornography. I've given this a lot of thought over the years because um, when I first learned about this, I thought, well, that's a weird fetish, you know, because like a foot fetish or you know, other kinds of fetishes. You're just like, yeah, you know, whatever. It's not, it's not for me, but what are you going to do? But stepsister, because a lot of the step, the stepsister or stepmom pornography is kind of a, a veiled incest, you know, because if I understand it right, uh, pure incest pornography is actually illegal or something or unethical. Like it's not shown in the United States, but, but you can get away with step and and i think that for it's coded as well you know we're saying step but it's you know wink wink it's actually real you know and then of course they're actors they're not really related so it's just a fantasy so um there's so many things to say but what i'll say is that a lot of fetishes particularly in pornography and which reflects what's in our what our fantasy life so our fantasy life is reflected in, you know, pornography in the same way that like marketers like Doritos, they figured out exactly what we want. We want crunch. We want salt. We want sugar. And my mouth is watering. <laughs> you know, uh, we want fats. There, there are, uh, there's perfectly dialed in foods that excite us. <laughs> and for pornography, it's the same way. You know, we have a, we've always had a fantasy life. And of course, it's changed over time as society changes. But pornography is, is you know, on a silver platter. It's like I know what's in your mind, and and let me show you. Let me let me excite what I know you already are thinking about. And so, uh, this pseudo incest fantasy has been around prior to the internet. And at first, you're like, so wait, you want to have sex with your sibling? Like that's not okay. But what it is, and there's a there's a whole category of this on the internet. Like uh, I've did I've done whole episodes on rape fantasy and how prevalent it is. They've done research. They've asked people, and a, a pretty a good percentage. Some I, just, I can't remember the exact stat, but fifty maybe plus percent of women will 
report that they fantasize some of the time about rape or coercion in their life. And of course, when you ask them, uh, do you actually want to be assaulted? They'll be like, of course not. So there's a huge difference between fantasy and actually wanting it to happen. So, and it's the same goes for incest pornography or step incest pornography in that the individuals, you know, 99.9% of them that consume this kind of pornography, they don't actually want to have sex with their sibling. And I think that needs to be, that needs to be understood very clearly because if you believe the otherwise you're like, Oh my God, everyone is a, a sicko. Everyone's a molester or something, you know? And it's there's a huge gap between fantasy and reality and the elements of it that and there's no way for me to know this because it, it we'd have to open up the mind and understand what's happening mechanically but what i think is happening is that we i think have a an evolved and again when we get into evolution and sexuality it gets kind of weird but there's certain there's certain themes in fantasy that I think point to a, um, a archetype, if you will, of sexual turn on that goes back tens of thousands of years. And I think one of the foundational sort of kinks that we have as humans is having sex in a in a sort of dangerous situation where we might get caught or it's forbidden and. I think that we evolved to have that because it, you know, I could see early humans a hundred thousand years ago wanting to sneak behind a tree, you know, because if you sneak behind a tree, then you might be able to propagate your genes faster. I don't know. It's hard to imagine what life would, would have been like for us back then. But, but I, I there seems to be a, a foundational, like I said, archetype around sexuality of forbiddenness, you know, in public with your stepmom. Uh, um uh what what other kind of forbiddenness kinds of things like um with your doctor, you know, and, and it, it, like gynecology porn. <laughs> Most people 99.9% of the people that consume that kind of porn, they're like I wouldn't want to do this in real life. This would actually be terrible. Um, in the same way that I think we have an archetype around submission and domination that obviously gets played out in pornography. Do we actually want to be dominated, you know, and thrown around and controlled? Uh, no, you know, but I think it, it tickles, if you will, this, this feeling, and I'm sure other scholars have studied this, have articulated better than I am, but that there the step pornography i think tickles this uh, fundamental archetype of forbiddenness that uh turns people on so uh, that's my explanation of that <laughs> and they've done research on that that the there's a, on various different kinks like this that there's the fantasy and then there's reality a similar thing along these lines is when people call uh, men daddy or women you're a real hot mama this kind of thing or baby why do we call our you know lovers people we're lusting after names like baby or babe or mama or papa or daddy you know um why do we do this 
uh, from if an alien came down from outer space, they'd be like, why do you always want to refer to your uh, lovers as parents or your infants? Well, again, we don't want to, you know, when you talk to people who use the word daddy or mama, they don't, they'll say, I don't want to have sex with my parents. No, that's absolutely disgusting. There's no way I would want to have, but so why do you call your husband daddy? You know, especially when you're screaming in bed, um, why do you do that? You know, incidentally, um, sometimes people will call me daddy on the internet. (laughs) It took me a while to kind of catch on to what they were saying like daddy because some people would say oh our favorite internet dad you know it's funny to like get so old that people on the internet consider you your father <laughs> you know you're old when the internet thinks of you as a as a dilf but anyway <laughs> anyway but there are two different guys some, some of them's like oh he's a wholesome he's like mr rogers you know he's like our dad and you know a comforting compassionate caring father but then so when people start calling me daddy, I'm like, oh, is that, are they referring to like a sort of Mr. Rogers kind of dad? But then, you know, people would alert me. No, no, no. They're sexualizing you. <laughs> so, you know, why would we do that? People, I'm guessing, don't want to have sex with their father. Now, Freud would beg to differ. But the way that most people think about it, experts, including myself, is that it's not father, it's authority. You know, we have these archetypes of authority over us. And dad was perhaps an authority over us. You know, he's, when we're children and we have a dad, he's, he's large and in charge. He, you know, knows what to do. He bosses us around. He cares about us. And we apply those select elements, if you will, of fatherhood or motherhood to our lust matrix. (laughs) Um, So again, if you just look at real common vanilla behavior, you don't have to even look at kinky behavior, you'll see all sorts of, uh, if you just took it verbatim, it's it's disgusting. (laughs) But uh, of course, our fantasy life is not verbatim and should not be taken as verbatim. Listener Diana from Florida says, my husband says he won't give up porn and that hurts and it hurts me to the core. My husband says he won't give up porn and it hurts me to the core. Some people consider his behavior abusive. I think that his lack of empathy toward how I feel is indeed abusive. I just never know how bad my marriage is and therefore I don't know if I should do something about it. If his porn habit is indeed abuse, then it makes me feel like I should get that I should get out of the relationship. But if it's not abuse, it makes me feel like I'm overreacting. Do you consider a spouse who watches porn an emotional abuser? And would the victim spouse be subject to PTSD? End of email. So there's a lot to unpack here. And I can't know, Diana, uh, what is happening. Because it could be abusive, right? You could have uh, a partner who watches porn and you're like, hey, uh, that hurts me when you do that. And then he's like, screw you. I'm doing it anyway. I don't care about your feelings. Um, and it's a part of a general callousness and abuse that's occurring in the relationship. You know, it's just it's just this one component of it. On the other hand, uh, he might... the the I wouldn't be surprised if your communication around pornography has been strained and not very comfortable for the two of you. And so it's possible that as as 
you discovered, I'm guessing you discovered him watching porn and it bothered you. And then, cause you might be oriented towards like that end of the spectrum that doesn't want pornography part of your and your spouse's life. And you went to him and he was hurt and he was shamed and he, you know, slinked away and said, you know, stop bothering me. It's completely normal that I'm doing this. And, you know, who knows what's happening, but we could, we could imagine a situation to, uh, where if we talked it out and there were a lot of other things happening, um, in your relationship that were positive, we might find that one, he might be able to adjust, um, and he's not, um, inflexible around pornography or two, the way you're interpreting it is not necessarily who you really are. Um, but the question I would ask myself, Diana, if I were you, well, one, I would go to therapy and couples therapy as well. But the other thing is, is do you feel harmed by him in general? Because if this is the only instance of him, quote unquote, harming you, then it raises a red flag of, well, maybe this, because abuse usually is a, uh, has is a constellation of behaviors. It's not just like one thing that someone does to you. You know, if he's a great guy and you have a great relationship and he listens to you and loves you and, um, you know, is kind. And then uh, you caught him watching porn and he refuses to stop. And everyone is telling you that's abusive. Like that doesn't really fit. And it could be, and I can't know that, but this notion that like, my husband looks at porn and won't stop. Therefore, I'm being traumatized. You know, is is not necessarily true. It could be, you know. And you're saying, um, do you consider a spouse who watches porn an emotional abuser? No, <laughs> clearly, in terms of what I'm saying. Uh, and and by the way, pornography is often associated with men, but uh, as our society changes and women are liberated from the shackles of sexism and misogyny. They're not, the shackles aren't completely off, of course, but as the, we start to chip away at it, we see rates of women looking at pornography increase. And we also see pornography oriented towards women increasing. And what does that mean exactly oriented towards women? Because certainly uh, per, there's a lot of overlap in terms of what appeals to various genders. But, um, we used to believe that like, and I remember for, you know, the first 35 years of my life, people would say men are, men are visually oriented, you know, basically because men look at porn and they objectify women's bodies and women are emotionally oriented. And this is just a ridiculous notion. <laughs> just like, it's so, it doesn't bear out in the research. Uh, people can have various levels of orientation towards visual stimuli, emotional stimuli, mental stimuli. Uh, we all have all of it. It's just a matter of degree and and style preference. So, uh, plenty of women are, you know, in, in terms of whatever stereotype we have of men and pornography, you know, leering at a por pornographic image and masturbating. Plenty of women are exactly like that, and there's nothing wrong with it, right? So um, we have to get that out of our heads. But this idea that a, a spouse who watches porn is automatically an emotional abuser is uh, ridiculous. And then, you know, would the victim of a spouse 
be subject to PTSD. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if you're being abused, then you can develop PTSD, sure. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I was listening to an episode with you and Bob, and you mentioned how filming sex in real life would be very different from pornography. A quick Google search made me realize that that is everyone else's opinion as well. I'm confused because this is not my experience at all. I'm a 19-year-old female who has had sex with five different people. The first one was twice a day in a long-term relationship where all my needs were met, except I can't orgasm, in the way that we fit well together kink-wise. I like light to to moderate BDSM where I am submissive. I also feel tremendous guilt about having any sexual desires, and that is something I'm working on in therapy. Therefore, finding this information amplified my shame feelings by quite a lot. How is real life different from porn? End of email. Yeah, anonymous patron, I'm sorry that, uh, you know, we said that blanket statement. It's ridiculous. Um, and it's something that's commonly, uh, you know, spouted. And as your experience on the internet shows that this idea of just like, you know, porn is nothing like real sex. And it's like, well, uh, um, some porn is is definitely, well, how do we, so one thing we want to say is that there's a lot of variety in porn. <laughs> and uh, I find that people have, when they think of pornography, they there's a stereotype or some kind of quintessential pornography image that kind of pops in their head. And I think everyone has a different version of that. But I think what people are usually talking about when they're saying sex is nothing like, you know, real sex is nothing like porn. What they're saying is like, there's a certain common pornography um, style where you have an extremely tatted up dude who's like just bulging with muscles and he's got a, a large member and he is aggressively uh, <laughs> pounding is probably the best word for it. And there's, you know, choking and, you know, not like severe choking, but, you know, there's just, there's slapping and hair pulling and, and what I think people are saying, they're thinking of stuff like that, you know, some, something in that sort of general ballpark. And they're saying, you know, if you're 16 and you're venturing on your first sexual experience, don't reference that. Don't try to do that. Like, just take it easy the first, you know, get to know yourself. Like, don't, uh, you know, and many women will report, like, they can tell the difference between a dude who has no idea what sex really is and a dude who has watched way too much porn. You know, there's certain things that uh, people will do, and, and I'm guessing of any gender, really, you know, that certain things that people will do that uh, show that they don't, they haven't gotten to know, like, their true rhythm sexually. Having said all that, are there super tatted up, bulgy, large member dudes who like to pound and, you know, women who like to be pounded in, in that choky, slappy, hair pulley way? Absolutely. So the stuff we see in porn does happen in real life. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, so the blanket statement that me and Bob must have Bob and I must have said was just like well sex isn't like porn is um ignorant <laughs> and simplistic um so we we need a you know a more nuanced way of of having that said because I think the sentiment is good you know 
uh, I don't know how to say it in a pithy way, though. It's just like, well, we should just understand that the stereotypical porn, mainstream porn, might not reflect the way that you want to be having sex. You know, don't automatically assume that mainstream pornography is the the sweet spot, if you will, for you and your partner. It, but it might be is the thing. You know, you might have a 16 year old who absolutely is into that kind of stuff, you know, and, and that's OK. And so for you, anonymous patron, I'm really sorry that, you know, it sounds like you've been through a lot of sex shaming and you're in therapy to get to, you know, fall in love with your own sexual desires and, and be OK with that. And for me to. Um, stigmatize that through simplistic, ridiculous statements that everyone says is um, it's not okay. Um, and I'm glad that you're in therapy and I'm glad that you're able to find your, you know, exploration sweet spot, if you will, with BDSM. And you're saying, you know, how is real life sex different from porn? I mean, what I'll say is that if, well, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, Is it possible for sex work to not be traumatizing? Some of some of Birdo's comments in the recent episode discussing catcalling gave me some clarity on why doing sex work over the summer while I was in between jobs was pretty traumatizing and sometimes scary experience that I kind of regret. Of course, I respect sex workers and know it's not a monolithic experience for people, but for me, it was incredibly emotionally taxing and my self-esteem took a hit. I was being complimented all the time, but it made me feel like a shell of a person. Like, is no one safe? I guess this is what all older men think of me all the time, but they only say it when paying me because they feel they bought my whole personhood, even though to them I am less than a person. I truly hated most of the men I met and blocked all their numbers once I got a job in my field and moved, which I definitely recognize as a privileged position. I was having a hard time quite articulating what about it was so upsetting, but I think it was their assumption that I would enjoy their presence. Just their entitlement was too much. I wish there was some discourse around how sex work can be traumatizing without invalidating workers that don't feel the way I do while upholding their right to protection. Thanks for reading. I felt like I could tell you about my experience without receiving judgment, so thank you. End of email. Well, I'm glad that you see me as a non-judgmental person. I work pretty hard at that. I wouldn't say I'm hundred percent for sure, but, um, I try to, I try to be that way. I, I find it a, a much happier life, <laughs> but yeah, I think what some people might not know, uh, and some people, some of you do know fully well as you do anonymous patron, but some of you might not know that there is a movement to, uh, you know, support sex workers to say, Hey, they're people, they're humans, they are working, they like their job, and all of the stigma against them is sex negative and sexist to some extent, in a, in a twist, if you will. And to speak ill of sex work or to you know point out, because in the old days, or continuing today, there when you are in the sort of vanilla mainstream discourse around sex work it's all like religious and you know oh that's gross and those women are disgusting and they're all like crack addicts and you know they're degrading themselves and uh, you know 
uh, all that kind of talk, which I'm sure you're quite familiar with. Well, there's a pushback against that. People saying, look, sex work is just a job. And the fact that our society, because of its puritanical Victorian roots, considers it to be uh, wrong and morally wrong and makes it illegal is, is really ridiculous. I mean, who cares <laughs> if someone is consenting to a job of sex work? Um, what's it to you to consenting adults? Uh, you know, we don't question massage therapists and I'm not saying massage therapists or sex workers at all, but I'm saying that it involves physical touch. You're there's, there's money exchange. The massage therapist might not be fully enthusiastic about the work all the time. And, uh, might some days might be kind of hard. It, it can take a toll on your body when, when you're doing massage therapy, you know, your back, it can hurt your back and your, you can have, um, repetitive movement problems with your arms and legs and shoulders and stuff. So, you know, it's analogous for sure. And yet massage therapy, it's like, yeah, it's fine. It's medical. And with sex work, it's like this disgusting, gross thing that has to be done in dark alleys full of needles. And st you know, so uh, there's this pushback against that of just like, no, no, no. Uh, Y'all are in the, you know, in the dark ages, <laughs> like grow up and stop oppressing these people of, of various genders, by the way, who work in sex work and it's all, it's all okay. Well then when you try and, and as the anonymous patron is saying, not only was I a sex worker, but I support sex workers and I'm, you know, supportive of the movement to support sex workers and to legalize it and to bring it out of the shadows and um, push back against the religious right and all this stuff. Um, but at the same time, I want to I want to point out some things about being a sex worker that were pretty awful for me. But does that make me on the other side? You know, it's it's similar to the abortion debate and, and other kinds of like the gun debate. If you're either on one side or the other, and if you're if you're not fully on our side, then you are on the other side. And so if you speak out against sex work, it, not like as a thing and as a whole, but if you like, you know what, for me, sex work, or maybe for some people, it's, it's really not so great for these reasons. Then it's like saying to someone, you know, you're fully in the pro-choice camp and you raise your hand and you say, well, you know, I'm fully on board with, with pro-choice and I've always voted that way, but I'm just, I'm a little uh, wary of just saying that uh, it's, it's no big deal. <laughs> you know, it, it, it is kind of a human life and can we talk about that a little bit? Do we have to completely ignore that reality? And to some people in the pro-life community, if you raise that question, you're out. You're of the enemy. You are essentially, you know, pro-life. You're essentially anti-abortion. You're one of them. And it's it, there's a similar kind of bifurcation in, in this in the sex work discourse. And I think that it's a natural. I've, I've been through this so many times with so many different topics that uh, there. Are, there's a that's a phase that whenever there's liberation, whenever there's progress, whenever there's, you know, heading towards um, progressive movements, there's always this there's always phases to it. And and this is one of the phase when there's a I don't know how to call it, but uh, I'm sure that academics have some kind of term for it. But there's a there's an in-group out-group thing that forms where the you know, the in-group of the progressives, they find each other uh, amongst a majority of outgroup people 
and they're like, oh, okay, we're, I'm on the inside, you know, I, I'm with other sex work, pro-sex work people, people who aren't religious right people. And this echo chamber builds and a sense of danger is felt because the outgroup is out to get you. And so if you do not toe the line, if you, if you have any diverging attitudes of the mainstream uh, of the in-group, then you are, you're a threat and it's scary. You know, the nuance, nuances can only be tolerated when people are, when they feel safe. And if so, if we want to eliminate kind of black and white thinking in a variety of topics in our society, whether it's race or sex or abortion or whatever, we need to first address the mainstream. If we push back on the the puritanical Victorian people, then the sex worker in-group won't feel so, it won't be so important for them to have these kind of black and white attitudes about these policies or, you know, intolerance of nuance within their own in-group because they're legitimately terrified of being dismantled by the majority and by the patriarchy. So, and this happens with like some pockets of Black Lives Matter, certainly, um, and other, you know, other kinds of issues, you know, gender issues. It, It happens. And, you know, I won't go into all the details, but I hope you get my meaning. So I think that for you, Anonymous Patron, you're just like, hey, you know, I'd like to, I, I'm in the in-group. I'm pro-sex work. I'm, pro, I'm, you know, I'm on the side. I, I'm advocating for, for those folks. I'm sex positive, obviously. I, I, I was a sex worker. But I'd like to raise my hand within the in-group and say, um, it's not all peaches and cream. It's not all roses. You know, there's some, there's some bad aspects to this. Like, uh, for you, you're saying... Uh, and and you are saying it's not a monolithic experience, but what you're saying for, from your experience is it you know you hated all the men that you were with. It did not feel good. It felt like exploitation. That's you didn't use that word, but you know, and it kind of traumatized you because now it's alerted you to the way a lot of men look at you. You know, you now know because they would tell you or they would treat you in a way they like the way that they. They wanted to, you know, the ideas is like behind closed doors, they're doing things to you and you're like, oh, this is what you always wanted to do to me. I didn't want to do this to you, but you, this is how you see me. And now when I'm walking out in the world, I now know what these men are thinking of me and I don't like that feeling. So yeah, uh, I could, you know, I could see that now you're again, careful to say it's not a monolith experience. And I'm sure there are some sex workers who are listening right now that'll say, no, 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 that's not, I mean, yeah, sure. Some men are like that, but I'm okay with that. And some men were really sweet, you know, and I've had uh, many sex workers, not many, but you know, a number of clients who were sex workers and frankly, friends who are sex workers and, and are, and they, you know, there's, it's, there's a variety of experiences. Um, I had a friend who was a sex worker for a while and she talked about how she just, she loved all the men that she was with, um, you know, not in love, but felt safe and close and it was fun. And she had a lot of pleasure, physical pleasure from the experiences. She made a lot of money. It was, you know, a fun experience. And uh, now is that everyone's experience? No, but um, it it just depends, you know. It's it's um, pretty personal, and I, ma- I imagine it's also kind of luck of the draw, like the sort of uh, clients that you 
have could affect your experience, obviously, you know, in, in some pretty dramatic ways. I mean, some clients will try to really harm you and there are, you know, rare cases, but cases where, where that happens. Um, so I think that, I think I'm addressing what you're saying. You know, is it possible for sex work? Um, but well, your first question is, is it possible for sex work to not be traumatizing? Yeah, absolutely. There are plenty of people who, uh, you know, and, and there's a, when we talk about sex work, there's a lot of different things that can be in that category. We have sort of the classic, uh, you know, picture in our mind of the John and the hotel room, but there's a lot of different versions of it. Um, there's, you know, uh, non-sexual sex work, meaning you just sort of cuddle and talk and cry together. <laughs> there's online sex work where, you know, you never actually are in, are in person with the individual. So, um, can it be not traumatizing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I don't know what the prevalence rate is, and I don't know how much of the trauma is a product of the fact that we, you know, um, criminalize it and thus uh, put it into the shadows and make, you know, if you're a McDonald's worker and a customer comes in and punches you in the face, you can call the cops and there are cameras and uh, you know, things in place, or if your manager punches you in the face there, you know, there's HR, there's all sorts of, you know, institutions that you can reach out to that will support you. If you're in the shadows as a sex worker and you're forced to be in there, like, and something bad happens to you, like, what can you do? And if you're a victimizer, you know that sex workers are vulnerable because of that reason. And so that, that's a problem with the system. That's a problem with our society. That's a problem with our stupid government. And uh, so how much of the trauma that sex workers experience is, is an outgrowth of that? I, I don't know, obviously. And I don't know if anyone knows because it'd be hard to, you know, numericalize that situation. But but um, absolutely. Are there examples of, of trauma? Are there examples of people who weren't really made for it. You know, that's my experience is the people that I have talked to who uh, did it, who really took to it and who had it as, and, and said it was pretty much a universal positive experience. They just seemed very, very suited for that kind of work. Um, and it's not a matter of strength versus weakness or I don't know. There, there it's, it's just, you know, in terms of what we've been talking about this episode, it's it's kind of like an orientation. I'm thinking about one friend of mine who really took to it, kind of surprisingly to me. And I, she, when I think about her overall lifestyle just throughout her life, she, in a lot of ways, is I don't know impervious to those kind to the kinds of harm that can happen in situations like that. She she sees it and she's like, yeah, you know, whatever. It just kind of rolls up. She's just really above it all, <laughs> if that's a way to put it, and excited about life. Um, so I'm not saying that anonymous patron, you don't have an excitement for life or that you, you aren't tolerant or something. But, um, you know, the few people I can think of who, who had a really positive experience, I, I, when I, th I just think they just... Or maybe it was just a compatibility thing, you know. It, you know, this sort of work obviously isn't for everyone. But um, 
Yeah, let me know on Honest Patreon if I addressed your question. So at the end of here, I'll just sort of tack on a couple other emails that were related to sexuality, but not porn. Anonymous Patreon says, what thoughts do you have on family members who strongly oppose a polyamorous life choice? After 15 years of marriage, my partner and I opened our marriage up. We put a great deal of thought into our decision. We sought therapy to help us process the experience and are so far happy with the outcome of being polyamorous. I expected some difficulties, but what I did not expect was how my family would react. They are otherwise progressive LGBTQ allies, and I was surprised by how negative and hurtful their comments have been. What hurts the most is the, is the way they make it about our children. The assumption is that we are damaging them for our own selfish desires. However, we absolutely considered our children in the decision, and I do not see any evidence of them being negatively affected. I'd love to hear your thoughts on family reactions to this kind of life transition, opening a marriage, as well as our culture's overall reaction to it as well. End of email. Yeah, so anonymous patron, polyamory rubs people wrong in so many ways that it's absolutely expected that people would have a negative reaction, not only family members, but also society. We have been uh, we have been so indoctrinated and brainwashed into monogamy as best and anything else is disgusting, particularly if you're a woman, by the way. And there's so many messages that are taught to us. It's in, you know, there's so many movies about how, you know, cheating is bad or being with, you know, multiple people is bad. You're, you're a slut. And, and there, you know, there are, uh, and you could argue that, uh, what's her face's character on Sex in the City? Like every single joke that she was a part of was playing with that idea. Anyway, my point is is that uh, it's really given the the essentially desert regarding education for the public around this. Uh, it's inevitable that people are going to have a negative reaction. I did when I first heard about polyamory. I was a clinician. I was like ten years into my career, and I you know, started hearing more because Seattle is kind of an epicenter for polyamory and kink friendly, you know, sex positivity. In fact, one of the very first, I've talked about this before. One of my very first episodes of the podcast back in 2008 was with Alina Gabosh, who it was, she died not too long ago, tragically. Um, uh, well, she, she, her loss in our community was deeply felt by a lot of people. She was, uh, in the, head of the sex positive culture center here in Seattle that was an umbrella organization that supported all sorts of people, kink friendly, BDSM, polyamorous, you know, also there was a, there was a, a sex club that we went to actually, she, it was a, it's a private sex club. She let us in me, Berto and, and Lita. And it's uh, anyway, point is, is that when I had her on the podcast in 2008, and you can still see this this episode on YouTube, actually. I think it's broken up into a few parts, but you can see a young um, me <laughs> interviewing her. And the way I'm asking questions, it's clear that I'm still not, I, I, I'm not on board with polyamory. Uh, pretty quickly, working with her after that episode and working with a lot of poly couples after that, I became very um, much uh, aware of polyamory and ethical non-monogamy and uh, you know it's it took a long time for my paradigm to shift so and i was a therapist and you know pretty open to it and it took me a while so it's just you know it, it when you go to your family so you because you, you went down a road and you made all the adjustments and 
changed your paradigm. And then you go to your family who is still stuck in that paradigm. And of course, you know, what about the children? And, you know, I, I recommend talking with your family, helping them, uh, showing them books. You know, there's the ethical slut, I think is, is that the book? Um, uh, t- showing research that shows that it, it, it doesn't negative, negatively affect children. There are plenty of kids who grow up in polyamorous families and are absolutely normally adjusted. You know, can a kid from a polyamorous family have issues? Sure. In the same way that a kid from a monogamous family can have issues. So, um, and this, it's the same, you know, it's the same sort of gay uh, panic that happened with gay people. There was always, I'm old enough, it sounds absurd in today's world, but in the you know 70s 80s 90s it was like the idea of gay people was like oh my god are they just going to have sex with me all the time it's like no <laughs> they they don't want to have sex with you all the time they're just they're you know there's somehow idea that like they're if you're not heterosexual you're somehow a crazed sex maniac right and you have to disabuse people of that idea there's this idea that polyamorous people are crazed sex addicts and it's like, no, they have sex at the same rate as everyone else. <laughs> like, it's, you know, once a week or I don't know what the average is. And, you know, they they put their pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> they have all the same issues. Uh, they just happen to be involved in multiple relationships. You know, they have a, perhaps a primary relationship and then a second, you know, two secondary and then like three tertiary or something. So it. Helping to uh, normalize it, bring it down to earth, help people understand um, is, uh, you know, it's a lot of work. There's more and more resources coming out. I'm guessing there's a fair amount of YouTube channels that you could point people in. So um, I sympathize with that you're going through anonymous patron. I wish you didn't have to do that. I wish you didn't have to inform everyone. I wish you didn't have to deal with the oppression and the ridiculousness of your society and your, and your family. But that's just the way it's going to be until we change things. And I, I don't see a tremendous movement ar- around this. Um, I, I don't, I don't know if in my lifetime I'll see the same progression in our society as we did with gay people. You know, I, I, I with gay people growing up, it was totally in the closet and barely anyone supported gay marriage to now a majority of Americans, including conservatives, uh, supporting gay marriage, right? So will I see that same progression when it comes to polyamory? Uh, you know, I, somehow I doubt it. So, because uh, I think monogamy is even more fundamental to our society than than heterosexuality. Um, and I think that's uh, borne out in the fact that we're still kind of in the dark ages when in our society when it comes to attitudes about polyamory. So, and it messes with like our legal understanding of marriage because like what if you allowed people to marry 10 people? What if you allowed, you know, one person to marry 10 people and then all those 10 people are married to 10 people? Well, how do you figure out the heir uh, uh you know who's in the who do you call when someone dies you know it 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 creates this um chaos legally speaking that i i think our society will have a really hard time adjusting to so 
um, you know, and ideas about parenting, like with for gay couples, it 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 was an adjustment, but for many people, they could sort of go well. There's still two parents, right? It's like there's two dads or two mommies. But what if you have like three mommies and five daddies, <laughs> and like ten uncles who have sex with your with you know what I mean? Like it 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 is um a, a paradigm that's much. I think more difficult for people to adjust to. I've made that adjustment. It's not impossible, but many people have, you have anonymous patron, but I, I think it's, it's harder for people. Um, but you know, we'll see there's, you know, there's definitely more, uh, uh, you know, when in the nineties for polyamory was completely underground and now, you know, it's pretty mainstream in, in certain circles to the point where you can go on, dating websites and you can click polyamory as, as one of your things. And that's been around for 15 years, as far as I know. Um, mainstream dating sites will be like, like, like as far as I know, but yeah. Um, last question here, listener drew from Victoria, British Columbia says, I'm wondering if you think it is helpful or hurtful to allow long distance partners to hook up with, the other sex while they are away from you to meet their physical needs, or if it would be enough to just allow them to cuddle and perform other non-sexual acts that would give them the same feeling of warmth End of email. So this is a polyamorous kind of question. Listener drew you're what you're saying is, you know, in a long distance relationship, uh, you're you and your partner are lonely and you know, you, you don't have any physical warmth in your life and you're like, well, maybe, you know, just allow some minor hookups with other people to get your needs met uh, while emotionally you're still dedicated to each other. Uh, this is absolutely a polyamorous question. And you have to ask yourself, the two of you, are you on the polyamory spectrum or are you monogamously oriented? For the truly monogamously oriented, uh, this would be intolerable. It, it would hurt too much to have their partner or even themselves quote unquote taint their relationship with other involvements. But if you're, you know, significantly on the spectrum, you know, a third on the spectrum or halfway on the spectrum towards polyamory, then this could absolutely be a, a, a way for you to get your needs met, but you'd have to really know how you're oriented. And I found that again, it's something once you explore it and really allow yourself to be whoever you are, people land somewhere on that spectrum. There are people who are just like, yeah, you know, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to celebrate the fact that my partner is having sex with someone else right now, but, but I'm okay with that. I know that she loves me. I, I know that she wants to be with me. And, and frankly, I, I wouldn't want to limit her in that way. You know, if she wants to have sex with someone else, then, then I, I love her so much that I want her to have that pleasure. You know, it, it's not the same thing, but it's similar to, you know, girls night or something, right? <laughs> like, you know, if for me, uh, with my wife, if she has girls night, it's like, I'm not invited. Right. And, uh, she's having fun without me and I'm sitting at home doing work or something. And she's out there having a great time with other people. Would I like to be a part of that? Um, not always, but you know, yeah, for sure. I, I want to have fun with her, and uh, I would like to always be a part of her life, you know, and, and vice versa. And so, 
but I'm okay with her enjoying herself with other people in this date night. You know, I mean, not date night, <laughs> girls night, you know, going out, having drinks, talking, whatever. Uh, and, and I, I, I'm okay with that. You know, I, there's a slight, um, I don't know. There's a slight loss there, I suppose. It's not really that big, but you know, you could imagine it's a same, it's a similar thing of just like, I, I don't want to limit my partner if you're poly and I, but I'm monogamously oriented. So I, I wouldn't want my partner Stacy to be with other people sexually, but if I'm okay with that and, and even though there's a part of me that wants to be there as well, but I'm like, well, you know, that that's kind of how I hear polyamorous people talk. They're just like, um, I just want my partner to be happy. And if that means being with other people, then absolutely, you know, cause, cause that's how I'm oriented. You know, there are times when I go through phases that I, I, I want to, I don't want to hang out with my spouse this week. I want to hang out with this other person that gives me these other kinds of things. And so anyway, you would have to ask that question of yourself, Drew and your partner before you did it. But if you both are polyamorously oriented, then, you know, that would, that'd be an absolute, and not only when you're long distance, but maybe when you're in person or maybe only when you're in long distance, you know, and if you, you know, talk to uh, mainstream people, they'll just be like, you can't do that. That's cheating. You know, that's going to break up your relationship and it can, but it also might not, you know, for some people to allow that flexibility actually allows the two people to stay together because we all know that a lot of people cheat. Right. And so imagine if, we, you know, the idea is, is that with a lot of the cheating, not all, but some of the cheating, it's a result of people being polyamorous people being shoved into monogamous lifestyles. And so if we had more education and understanding of our polyamorous nature, one, you would hook up with other polyamorous people. And two, you would talk about it before you had sex with other people. So it's not cheating. You know, you would, you would work it out and you would talk about protection and about what this means. And, and do you actually love me even though you're having sex with another person? You know, there, there would be a much more rational adult uh, approach to these kinds of issues. Anyway. All right. Well, I got to all of the porn and sex questions <laughs> that y'all emailed me and everyone out there. And, you know, email and follow-ups. I'm curious what you think about what I'm saying. Uh, and I'll maybe make another episode about that. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself. Because you deserve it, you really, really do.